I'm Gabby Logan and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. In this episode, I'm joined by Alistair Campbell, the author and political strategist best known for his six-year stint as the former Prime Minister Tony Blair's Director of Communications. Despite returning briefly as an advisor to Gordon Brown and to Ed Miliband, Alistair left frontline politics in 2003 to focus on his partner Fiona and their three children, as well as writing and raising awareness about mental health issues and drawing on his own personal experiences to help others. In our interview, Alistair opens up about his lifelong fear of financial insecurity, why he hands over his family's financial reins to his wife, and he thinks former Chancellor Gordon Brown does the same, plus how he made a fortune busking around Europe with his backpipes. Alistair Campbell, if I was to describe you as author, political strategist, would that, would that kind of encapsulate enough for you of what you are and who you are? Yeah, author, I write books, uh, political strategist, I don't do that as much as I used to. Podcaster. Podcaster could do that, mental health campaigner, um, editor at larger than you European. A lot of jobs. I mean, there was a lot to unpick when looking at your, your biography and so much to, to get into. I'm not sure we're going to have the time to do everything, but this is essentially about money and finance, this, this podcast. And, um, and actually, it's interesting how talking to people about their lives through that prism reveals quite a lot about them and their motivations. Um, let's go back to your family life as a kid and how important money was or wasn't. What kind of a role money played? Were you aware of your parents having any struggles? Did you feel that money was abundant? What was it like? It's really interesting. And I was thinking about this before before we started. I was thinking, me and money, it's kind of, I don't know what to say really, because my childhood, I wasn't aware of it, really. My dad was a vet. I used to, I'd say my first sort of financial memory is of him sitting at the kitchen table on a Sunday night. And I'd say, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going through the accounts for the week. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I can remember him. I can remember his checkbooks. He had these checkbooks out and and his bills. And I can remember he did used to complain a lot about vets in Yorkshire not paying the bills on time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I never had a conscious. I, I never had a sense of us being being worried about money. Whereas I knew I had friends at school who did. Um, and I can remember when sometimes when we we used to go on holiday. All our holidays were in Scotland. A bit like with you with Wales, we were always, you know, Scottish and Scotland was kind of where we went all the time. And I do remember some of, maybe some of our, I remember my, my dad came from a croft, his, his father was a crofter um, in the Hebrides. And, and, I, and I do remember having conversations about how they saw him, you know, now he's a vet, he must be absolutely rolling in it and blah, blah, blah. And they'd had to struggle and stay on the island and all this stuff. Um, but I think the other thing I'd say is I, I don't ever have a memory of my parents being money conscious, thinking that money was a big deal mm-hmm. either way. So you had enough, you know, there was never a sense of not being able to have new shoes for school or being able to go on a school trip. So there was, there was enough, but it wasn't no. the priority. Because what I find interesting in these conversations is people who aren't aware of their parents' finances or struggles, you know, they, they often choose careers themselves that aren't motivated by that kind of financial security. They just tend to do things that they really love. And inevitably, because they're on this podcast, they become successful at it because they've got a passion for it. So when you were sitting down thinking about where you wanted to go in life, was money ever a factor for you? I don't think I ever had that I want to be rich thing. 
but I did always have worries about money. I, I, you know, for example, my first real kind of earning, apart from sort of odd jobs when I was at school and stuff, but when I was a student, I became a busker with my bagpipes. And I, it was just an accident. I was learning, I was doing language at university. I had a year abroad. I actually went without my bagpipes. But then when I got there, I, I remember my dad and my mum were coming out just to see me. For, I think it was the first time they'd been abroad. Well, first time they had, I can't remember, one of them had to get a passport, remember that. And they came out to see me. And I said to my dad, as you're driving down, because you're driving down, bring my bagpipes. Okay? <laughs> now, after they left, I went to this little village. I was in Nice, right? And I went to this little village called Ayres where they make all the perfume. And I found this really quiet car park away from everybody. There were no cars. It was, it was in the middle of winter. And I just sort of, you know, I blew the pipes up. I tuned them. I gave them a bit of go. And I was just playing a few tunes. And within about half an hour, I had a crowd around me. And they were throwing money into the box. Cash. Coins. Well, this is interesting. I honestly hadn't gone out with a view to busking. And then I thought, well, if it's like this in an empty car park, park in a yeah. tiny little village, what's it like in the pedestrian precinct in Nice, <laughs> right? So I went down the next day to the pedestrian precinct in Nice. And honestly, I, it was, I was rolling in it. <laughs> so, and then I, I, tra I traveled all around Europe. I traveled all around Europe with the pipes. And I was never broke. I, I, honestly, I made a lot of money. All in cash. There can't have been too many people competing for the bagpiping kind of uh, post or uh, stand in, a, in the busking community. You must have been the only one, right? No, I met one. There was one other. And I like to think I was a better player than him. Uh, but the, you're right. The, 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 thing, the great thing about the bagpipes is that you drown out the others. The singers, <laughs> the guitars, they've got no chance. And you know down in the south of France, those terraces of restaurants, right? Yeah. I had a mate who had a motorbike. And I used to get on the back of the motorbike, playing the pipes. We'd arrive from distance, right? We'd go up and down the, the, the thing, uh, the, the terrace, about 100 miles an hour, doing wheelies and playing the bagpipes, right? People would laugh, etc. He would then, we'd stop. He would take off his crash helmet and go round and collect the money, back on the bike and off. So we could do about 10 restaurants in two minutes. You were absolutely You're a guitarist or a, you know, a, a flautist. Uh, yeah, we were. We were absolutely raking it. We actually set ourselves the target one day, starting in Brussels and finishing, I can't remember where, Strasbourg or somewhere. We set ourselves the target of doing £1,000 equivalent in one day. This was in 1977. Wow. Um, and we just fell short, but we didn't. We weren't <laughs> far off it here. Yeah. What age were you, Alistair, at this point? Uh, 20. Right. So you went back to university with a lot of cash. I can't deny that I spent a lot of cash while I was away. <laughs> um, but right. yeah, I had cash and I went back and I put it, you'll like this, you, your investment type people will like this. I put it all into a building society account. Did you? <laughs> I, I was more, I did. And when I, Fiona will tell you, when we first met and for a long time thereafter, I never went anywhere without my building society passbook in my inside pocket. Those I remember those little books, those little... Um... Yeah, with the handwritten... The, every time you went in, you gave it to the, 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 the woman or the guy behind the counter. They had to count the cash, write it in. So you had this. I've got it somewhere. You, you've got these, this handwritten record. And I had this thing. I think it... I don't know where it came from. 
had a pathological fear of being in debt. And my building society passport was a reminder that I always had cash somewhere. So where did that come from? Um, I've still got it, by the way. I don't know, really. Maybe at, maybe at a subconscious level. I remember my dad, when I was about nine or ten, and because he, he had his own practice up in Yorkshire, and he had this really bad accident with a, with a, a sow, this sow that attacked him while he was vaccinating the piglets. And he was in hospital for a long time, and then he came back, and he couldn't quite get going again with the whole 24-7 practice thing. So he sold the practice, and he joined the Ministry of Agriculture for a kind of quieter life vet's job, as it were. And we got moved to Leicester. And I often think that was like just, you know, when I, when I now have sessions with my psychiatrist about my depression, you know, that's the one big moment of trauma that I can find in my childhood. Now, it, it, it didn't necessarily feel like that at the time, but I think it was this sense of having less security. Mm. And the other thing is, I was conscious of the fact, at least I think I was, this might just be memory, or, you know, rationalising it today. I was conscious of the fact that we moved to a, to a much smaller house. And I, I don't know whether, again, at a subconscious level, mm. I wasn't thinking, this, right, she's had this accident, and our whole life has changed, and we've had to move in the middle of school term to a place that we don't know, didn't particularly like, to be honest. And we're living in this, you know, listen, it was a really nice house, but it was a much, much, much smaller house. Mm. So I don't know where it came from. And I've always liked cash. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I worked on my uncle's farm up in Scotland. And I, I actually did it because I liked going there and I liked him. But he paid me every week in, in, one, in one Scottish one-pound notes. Hundreds of them. <laughs> and again, I would keep these over the summer. And I had this pile of stack of one pound Scottish notes. And, and, and part of me was thinking, I can't wait to go to the building society and pay this in. So going back to that, that makes sense. You know, that experience makes sense. And why you would have some kind of deep seated fear of perhaps, you know, losing all your money or not, you know, not being able to afford what you previously had. In terms of the lessons um, that they gave you, apart from the ones that you're observing, did they ever sit down your parents and say, you know, when you get your first job, make sure you take out a pension or uh, make sure that you put something aside? I mean, you had your building society account. We know that. Did you get any of those kinds? of lessons from them? No, not really. I think both my parents were driven, they were much more driven by what I would call human values than financial values. I remember when I went to university um, and I had a grant, um, I, I went very young, I went literally straight from A-levels. And I can, you know, I remember my, my dad dropping me off at Cambridge and he gave me two things. He gave me, he gave me a tenner, <laughs> right? He said, get something decent to eat tonight and don't spend it all on drink, right? And he gave me a little, and he gave me a, an envelope inside which was this very, a, a letter. And then at the end, it, it was that, it's a quote, that quote from Hamlet that loads of kids have been given when they've left home, you know, this above all to thine own self be true and it must follow as night the day thou canst not be false to any man. Oh. And that was it. So <laughs> no, there was no sort of big sit down. I think also they had worked, I think they knew because, I don't know, I don't think they worried about me when it came to 
finances, whereas maybe they worried about my siblings a bit more, particularly my older brother who had schizophrenia. Mm. And so he was always, you know, once he was diagnosed, that was always going to be quite a struggle for him. Although, funnily enough, he ended up, after he was in the army and then he got, he got invalided out of the army and then he sort of he scratched around trying to get different jobs while he was coming to terms with this wretched, horrible illness. And he, he ended up, he ended up thinking that he was a great insurance salesman, and he kept sort of wandering from insurance salesman job to insurance salesman job. And I was always his first customer. <laughs> and funny enough, the other day, in fact, it was around, it was around the time that you got in touch to ask me to do this. We got a, a letter out of the blue from an insurance company about the maturing of a policy that I honestly didn't know I had. Oh. I, when I hear <laughs> people have actually, those kind of stories, you know, I always yeah. think, how do you not know? <laughs> but you've probably been sold so many by him over the years. It was quite a few. It was quite a few. And and, and this this one was like, uh, his first one was Scottish Amicable, then there was Scottish Provident, and there was Leicester something or other. Uh, and then he worked in Leeds, and, and I was all I all I was always he say and he tell me he told me Ali I've got a great I've got a great new job and I'm doing insurance again oh God here we go it's only a tenner a month give us a tenner a month and you know <laughs> this will make you this and it'll make you this anyway this one I can't remember how much it was but it was like it was in five figures and it came in just out of the blue. And what did you do with it? That's 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 interesting. Kind of how your financial, you know, kind of attitudes changed. Would you go and blow that money because you didn't know it was coming in on something that you really fancy, or would you put it into another account or ISA or whatever it is that you you do now? You know what? This is. I don't know what you and Kenya are like, but I don't do anything. So Fiona does literally absolutely everything. So basically, I give it to her, and then <laughs> what happens to it happens to it, and I, w- I wouldn't have a clue. Is that because you're irresponsible? No, no, I'm I'm not a spendthrift. I mean, I'm not. I, I like to think I'm pretty generous, but I'm not a big consumer. I don't see the point of having more than one car. Uh, I don't really go now that we've we've got this house in France. We don't really do kind of holidays other than coming here. Um, I, I don't have a watch. I've not worn a watch since I've got a mobile phone. I think, what is the point of having a watch when your time's on the mobile phone? Um, I'm just not into kind of, mm. I'm not a big consumer. I don't spend low. I don't actually don't like being in shops is the honest truth. I get a bit kind of edgy in any retail environment. And it's not because I'm going to blow loads of money. It's just that I'm not interested. You're obviously a massive football fan. So what would you think of spending a lot of money on a trip to watch Burnley if Burnley were playing in Europe right um would you be like yeah I, d- I don't care what it costs I'm going to watch them play on Tuesday night Wednesday night well when we were in Europe a few years ago uh I went to every game so that was Aberdeen Istanbul and Athens with one of my boys and yeah and it was whatever you know it honestly didn't matter yeah so that would be that would be me being spendthrift by my right lines yeah. and I would you know we'd stay in a nice place and you know we'd yeah, and absolutely. so, as far as you're aware, Fiona's doing very sensible things with the family finances. Well, I'm not sure about that because we we recently um, had some sort of work done, and she was like, "Oh, we're, we've been a bit cleaned out on this." And I'm I'm going like, well, "Hold on a minute, what, what does that even mean?" When I you know work work my balls off and sell loads of books and make loads of speeches that people bizarrely pay me to kind of say what I think about the world. 
and you're telling me, oh, well, it'll be all right. Once we're through this, it'll be fine. But, but yeah, I sort of do trust that. What we don't do, I don't, the only shares I own, you mentioned Burnley, the only shares I own are in the University College of Football Business, which started at Burnley. And I only bought them because it was starting in Burnley. I didn't buy them as an investment. As it happens, they've done really, really well. So I'm not a share owner. Um, I don't, I, th- I think we've got, yeah, I think we've got an ISA. I think we've got an ISA. I, and, and I remember when we bought, took them out, uh, Fiona went low risk and I went high risk. And she, hers has made way more money than mine. She told me that with glee recently. And she said, you know, we could, yeah, she said, said, you know, she just stuck with me on the low risk one and then it would be fine. And apart from that, yeah, I do trust her. Yeah, yeah. And so all that but, work... But it's because talk- I don't want to think about it. No, it doesn't interest you enough to, to really dig deep into it. So it's, it's a good job that she is interested enough to go off and sort stuff out. Um, going back, take a step back a bit to kind of your first working job, if you like, your first career was obviously as a journalist. Um, how motivated were you when you were negotiating your own contracts and things? Were you quite good at pushing a hard bargain and, and making sure you were paid a decent wedge? Yeah, probably was. In the, I, I've, I've never been, I'm not great at asking for money, but I've never been scared of saying, hold on a minute. You know, for example, to, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm just this morning I was talking to this guy in Ireland who's doing a, com- asked me to go and speak at a conference and he told me what he wanted to pay me. And I said, well, that sounds fine, but I don't want to get there and find that you've got five other speakers there who are being paid double, which was a way of saying, <laughs> you know, I might be paid back. the most here, right? Yeah. So, and, and he said, oh, I see what you mean. He said, well, I've got a couple in who are on board. I said, well, who are they? What is it? And by the end of the conversation, you know. You were top dog. <laughs> sorted that out, as it were. Um, <laughs> but I didn't be, no, I was joint top. Joint, joint top dog was some guy who I kind of accepted was a topper dogger. Okay. <laughs> that won't be the clip we use to, um, to advertise the podcast. <laughs> topper dogger. <laughs> no, you don't want to do topper dogger, do you? That is, that is not... <laughs> no, no. But because when I was a journalist, when I started out as a journalist, um, I think we were on about three grand a year. It was something wow. ridiculous as trainees. But then I did find that I was doing loads of freelance stuff because we were down in, in the West Country and it wasn't that well covered by the national papers. And there were some really big stories happening when we were down in the Penley lifeboat disaster. Right. We had a, a, a very famous... Um, murder case that was happening that was a big running story and i found that i was making quite a lot of money on the side just by you know working for the paper i was working for and then filing stuff to the nationals and i found that kind of very easy to do and then when i've then started to go into national newspapers that's tended to what i tended to do was to look around the newsroom and say who was i on the level with and then make sure i wasn't being paid less than them that's kind of how I, how I, I approached it. But if I suddenly found out that somebody was paid double, mm. it didn't bother me that much. Because, of course, when you go into government, you are then, I assume, pretty structured in terms of what you can earn because you're obviously open for scrutiny. So you've left behind the, the possibility when you're working in that commercial environment of newspapers to earn what you want to earn and, you know, be freelance, do whatever you like. write books you know go on telly and then when you work in government it's as we know the the prime minister's finding it very hard to survive on his salary so um what was your kind of compromise if you like at that point you know how how hard was it to negotiate a salary in government that you felt was commensurate with your talents and what you were offering 
Well, it didn't really work like that because what happened was when I, I started working for Tony Blair in opposition, um, so I had three years being employed by the Labour Party, and that was a, that was a big, big pay cut. Mm. One of the difficulties about doing the job, given that Fiona and the rest of my family didn't want me to do it anyway, to be doing something that most of your family don't want you to be doing and you're taking a massive pay cut, it wasn't easy, right? When we got into government, of course, that then I had quite a big pay rise. But as you say, that's, that's your lot, mm. and you're paying tax. And the other thing people don't maybe understand about special advisors, I wasn't a civil servant, I was a special advisor, is that you're not on that civil, per, civil service pension scheme. But one of the right, things okay. now is that, you know, we, over the years, we, ha- we probably haven't put enough into our, into our pensions. And I meet friends and colleagues. I was at a thing at the French embassy the other night and, uh, in London, and there were colleagues there that I, about my age who were senior civil servants. And, of course, they're now, you know, they're doing perfectly fine, thank you, without doing any work at all because they've got a very good civil service pension. But I never really, I never really worried too much about that. And also, I may say, Gabby, at the risk of dragging this into the political arena, I'm not sure the current government are that bothered by the rules. I think they're making money all over the shop. You, you know, even the thing about getting other people to pay for your wallpaper. I'm afraid in our day. Well, that's, that's what I was. I was intimating when I said that Prime Minister doesn't seem to be able to live on his salary. Obviously, um, there seems to be some grey areas, doesn't there, around what's going on at the moment in terms of what's declared and what's not. Were you quite strict about that? Or did it feel to you that there was a very strict code of conduct that was being adhered to at the time when you were in Tony Blair's government? Yeah, and and also, uh, you know, I am very strict like that. I I, I am when it comes to stuff like... And and partly that was the the press guy in me, knowing what the media would do with it if they found that people were kind of bending the rules and so forth. Yeah, so I was very, very strict. And, And that led to all sorts of real difficulties. I mean... When I think about the thing with the flat in number 10 and how Johnson and, and Carrie Simmons of, you know, this stuff of the wallpaper and the refurbishment and what have you, I can remember when Cherie, Tony's wife, Tony and Cherie got a new bed for the number 11 flat where they were living, right? Now, they paid for it themselves. But I can remember the absolute hoo-ha in papers like the Mail about, you know, they've spent X thousand pounds on a bed. Right, you know, <laughs> it was like, whereas now, I mean, you, they just, this lot get away with, with so much. And I'll tell you another thing, checkers, people talk about all these. I don't know whether Johnson does this, and, you know, I'd be very surprised if he does, but I can remember that Tony and Cherie had to pay themselves for all these dinners that they hosted down there. Yes, yeah. And I, you know, I was certainly keeping across that and saying, that, you know, we've just got to be very, very careful about this stuff. It is a compromise in many ways, obviously, because you you know uh, what the prime minister earns, you know, is is a lot of money. But of course, compared to what people like that can earn in the private sector, uh, we all know that they could earn a lot more money if they were working in banking or if they were working in um, less noble arts, let's say. Um, so, so there is this sense, isn't there? And Tony Blair's gone off and done very nicely after he's been in government. Is are you kind of when you take that pay cut, as you you know, kind of yourself, obviously, could have earned. Uh, a lot more staying in the kind of commercial sector. That's a moral uh, and a purposeful kind of decision almost that you're making. But then are you thinking, well, later on, I'll, I'll get myself back on track. So I'm going to not have a pension right now. I'm not going to contribute as much as I did to, to my private investments because later on I'll be working back in that commercial sector. Mm. I don't think I thought like that. Um, it's like when people, you know, one, one of the big earners in my life has been my diaries. 
you know, the first deal I did for the first volume of my my diaries was this was in the I mean book deals aren't as big as they used to be, mm. um, but it was like it was a lot of money, um, and people so when people were interviewing me about the diaries, you know, when you kept the diary, were you thinking one day you would publish mm. them and make loads of money? And the the, the truth answer is no, I wasn't. I mean, look, part of me when I was working with Tony Blair, part of me thought I want to do this job and I want Labour to stay in power forever. You know, because that's whereby politics are. And so you would have been doing the job forever if it had gone well. <laughs> I think it's impossible to do it forever, but I certainly, I don't think I was thinking about money in that way. And, you know, when I did leave in 2003, um, I, had, I literally, I hadn't talked to anybody about leaving apart from very, very, very small number of people. Tony, obviously, Fiona and the kids, obviously. But apart from that, because it was... You know, if you remember the circumstances in which I was leaving at the height of the Iraq war and the Hutton inquiry and all that, and I'd been trying to get out for some time, but I couldn't talk to anybody about it because at the time it would have been mm. like a big story, you know. So I, I kept it very, very tight. And what it meant was I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't sound out potential employers. <laughs> no. no, so I didn't. I literally left. I had nothing. And I went from this full-on job to thinking, right, what do I do now? And then, I, you know, I had various strokes of luck. One of the first things that happened actually was that if you guy called you know a guy called Keith Blackmore who was the sports editor of the Times and he got in touch and asked me to write a series about he said look how do you fancy doing something non political I said well it depends on what it is he said well just think you could write a sports column for us and I said well, I don't know if I do about doing a weekly column but what about if I write a series about who is the greatest sportsman or woman of all time and I basically go around the world interviewing loads and loads of famous and brilliant sports people about who they think it is. What a great job to create for yourself. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then I, then I um, and then the speaking thing, I mean, I remember Al Gore. I think it was Al Gore who said that the, the post-politics speaking circuit is, should be classified as white-collar crime, where you get offered <laughs> ludicrous sums of money to go up and talk. And that once I realised that that was there, and I knew it wouldn't go on forever, although to be fair, you know, I'm doing one in Africa next week, you know, so it can go on forever, but it doesn't go, it doesn't go on forever in terms of being satisfying, if you like. So the freelance lifestyle, which is, you know, notoriously precarious and can be, uh, and there is, a, there is a temptation as a freelancer to always say yes to everything because you never know when it's going to dry up. But you've obviously reached a point where you're so confident in what you do that actually you can create space to do your writing, create space, presumably as well, for your own mental health, because you've realised along that journey that it's, you know, it's not great to be over busy and to fill all the gaps in your life. Um, but there is the side of the freelance world, which that financial kind of insecurity can can be a driver, can't it? Yeah, I don't, when, when I meet people who are freelancers, who's who are basically operating in a world where they you know, they want to get to about, I don't know, 35 grand a year or something. Uh, and they're working flat out to do that. I think that would scare me. So I, I, as if I, if I mean, look, you know, I'm, I'm still in that kind of space where, as you know, because we've done stuff together, I will often speak at schools and colleges and charity stuff pro bono. Yeah. But when it is a bank, I will ask for quite a lot of money. Yeah. So if you know you've got a few of those in the diary going forward, then you, that's a kind of financial 
base. Then the other thing, I, I, this, this maybe goes back to the insecurity we talked about earlier. If I look at a given week in the next few months and there is no earning event in that, I get a bit panicked. It's a bit antsy. No, it's ridiculous, but I do. And I start to think, right, I've got to put something in there. So, yeah, I, I, and I, I've, I've, until I recently, really, I've never really had that mentality because when I was a journalist, I was full-on, salaried. Then, as you say, in, in politics and government, salaried, uh, not allowed to make money on the side. And I, I never saw myself as anything other than a kind of full-on salaried person. But now, I've got to be honest, I, I don't think I could give up the freedom that I've got. You are an entrepreneur, you know, you're one of Margaret Thatcher's dreams. She wanted everybody to be their own boss, didn't she? <laughs> I don't think you're going to like that comparison, are you? No. <laughs> Let, let's talk about somebody in politics that you probably do have a lot more admiration for. Uh, Gordon Brown as Chancellor um, obviously had to make big financial decisions every day. Um, when you've got somebody like that who is your you know, your colleague, you're seeing them all the time. Do you ever kind of ask personal financial issues? What are you going to do with this? Are you planning on raising this? I do I need to move some money to there? Did you ever get any kind of advice or tips from Gordon? No, never. And again, that was, I think some people in politics probably are doing that, trying to find out what's happening because it affects them. It, and that, that kind of thing never, ever crossed my mind. Do you know what? I don't think it crossed Gordon's mind for himself either. Mm. You know, if you think about being, being the <laughs> Chancellor, you're making decisions that will affect you and your family as well. Um, I thought you were going to ask me whether I ever asked Gordon about what he, how he managed his own financial affairs for his, himself personally. And I don't know this, but I'd be very surprised if Gordon is anything other than like I am with Fiona. <laughs> so Sarah does everything when it comes to their family finances. <laughs> I'd be very surprised if he's too closely focused. You've talked about asking your kids and Fiona, obviously, but discussing decisions with your family quite regularly, actually, already today. Um, how did your and, and that they didn't like some of the decisions that you were making? Um, so I get the impression that the Campbell household, you know, growing up, your kids were kind of very involved in what was going on and heard lots of really interesting conversation, I imagine, as well. How much did you talk to them about their own finances when they were kids and how aware were they of kind of savings and you know putting money aside or thinking about the future did that ever come up mm, no no <laughs> not really I think again I think we I think Fiona and I like our parents like my parents and Fiona's parents I think are the same is that I think we were much more interested in sort of hoping that they were growing up as good people rather than that they were kind of obsessively focused on, on money. Now, as it happens, our, our, eldest, our oldest child, Rory, he's a professional gambler, um, mainly in football, and does pretty well. Um, got a good company. He's, uh, he's, uh, I think he's, look, he's, he's, his political values are in the right place, but he's, so he's obviously in, in, into money. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think understands money much better than I do understands the way markets work probably better than, than I do. And then our, our second boy, Callum, he is in, he's in the film and strategy world. And again, I think quite canny, but not driven by money, just not, not driven by it. And our, and our daughter, Grace, who you've met, um, she's, a, she's a comedian, which is, you know, 
some of them get very, 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 very rich, but you know, most of them don't. It's a precarious existence. And I think Grace is honest enough to admit that, that she does okay, but could she have done it without knowing that mum and dad were in the background and would help her out if need be? It's tough. Yeah. And does she rely on the bank of mum and dad sometimes? Is she, uh, or does she have to do a, a supplementary job? Does she have to work somewhere she doesn't really want to? The very short answer to that is 100% <laughs> the former. <Right. laughs> and, and, she's, and she's very good at playing the card of, well, you know, <laughs> you weren't around enough when I was growing up. So, you know, <laughs> you owe me kind of, she's pretty so, good at that one. She's she's good at manipulating. Yeah, but I, I sort of I'm, I'm I'm pleased in a way though that they've all ended up doing very different things that they want mm. to do. They followed their passions, which is yeah yeah I guess that's that's right. And 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 I think with um, with Rory and his company, look these com- things go down as well as up. That's for sure. But it's sort of he's in his thirties now, and it, I sometimes do think, well, you know, this goes back to my insecurity about. Uh, you know, about being insecure. It's really weird. That, that's what it's about. It's like I fear being financially insecure. And part of me thinks, well, Rory will look after us. He's, he's <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's doing well and he's, and he's generous and <laughs> what have you. So uh, I'll tell you the other, the other massive fear. I, I don't want to come over like I'm completely useless, but I am a, a lot of things. But another I, I've, I've told Fiona like a million times there is no way in the world that she can die before me because I, I, I honestly, Gary, this is going to sound pathetic. I, I don't even know how to get into our bank account. If you told me to do online banking, you might as well tell me to go and do a lecture in Swahili. I can't do it because I've never done it. She's going to have to write a manual passwords, or something. Uh, yes, a load of passwords. You have to write a Bible for you of passwords. I keep asking for it and it never comes. Alistair, we've learned a lot about your financial kind of education and theories. You're not materially motivated. Your wife pretty much takes care of everything when it comes to any investments or accounts. You're definitely happy that your kids have followed their passions and not pursued careers based on money. You didn't have that kind of very insecure background when it came to money as a kid. You didn't seem to worry too much apart from that that one moment, which perhaps has led you to not ever want to be in debt, which is no bad thing. But I wonder of all the periods, the busker in France, the young journalist with his first salary doing his work on the side as well, or the man in government, or even the man now who's doing a lot more freelance work, which have you learnt the most about money, would you say? Which period taught you your best lessons? I think probably the busker. Because I think what it taught me was that you can you can get out there and just make money. And even though this sounds really weird, we've just been at a wedding in Switzerland and I played the bagpipes. And I, I know... I know that if I really fell on my uppers, I could go out and play my bagpipes and there would be some people who put money in my box. Thanks for listening. If you've got time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 